0: felt like that way with you, you just said, all right, here we are. And so I I just want to encourage you, if you have not met anyone uh, from staff or at least someone from the church, I would love to invite you out afterwards to lunch too as well, just so you could kind of see what this church is about. Um, We're just so glad that you're here. And uh, we are in the study of the book of Acts. Uh, Acts, we're in chapter 17. We are making our way through. We started just after Easter And we have been kind of on a roll all the way, um, uh, and we're about a little over halfway. The book of Acts, if you don't know, is, is a discipleship letter. Luke, who is the author of Acts, who also wrote the book of Luke, is writing to someone called Theophilus. And he is discipling Theophilus, maybe the people around Theophilus. And as he's writing, he is detailing historically all the accounts that have happened since the resurrection and then beyond now to the establishment of the church. Some of the things that you're going to see is the establishment of the church beginning to unfold, where the mission work is being done. Every week we look and we see part of this grand theme of Acts is that the Spirit is empowering and the Spirit is moving the church forward. And, and every week we kind of see a, a little mini theme in each one of these chapters. This week we're going to look at Paul's, who is the apostle, now Luke is writing about, and at this point traveling with. We're going to see his versatility in evangelism. Every context has a different point of contact, and Paul, the apostle, was so good at making those connection points in each context. Almost every city he goes to, he has not been to before. I don't know about you when you travel, but like when I go to a new city I don't know, I get really anxious. Are you like this? I don't like being lost. I don't want to end up in a, a part of town I don't really know and it could be not good for me. I, I, I always have a little bit of like I need to know, I need to know, I need to know everything about it. Paul is charging forward in cities. He has no idea of what context he's walking into. He's a prime example of someone who studies the culture, knows the culture, and engages the culture. I think we have a lot of natural abilities to connect with people via our own experiences. So like if I was to meet someone who was a pastor, I could connect on a lot of our experiences. If you're from Michigan in here, right away we have an automatic connection about how much you should hate Michigan State and especially Ohio State. Like, we know right away we have a connection and that our lions will never, never win, <laughs> ever. And, you know, that's this all of a sudden this immediate connection that's the easy stuff. And I think that those are things we should always draw on when we are presenting the gospel to somebody, when we are connecting to minister to someone. These are the easy things, but what about the unfamiliar things? This is when it becomes a little bit more of an effort, a little bit more of a strategy, if you will, a little bit more of a willingness, a risk to reach across to someone else who you do not know, who is not from your context, who lived a completely different life than you, and begin to try to connect at wherever you can begin to connect it will most likely not them trying most people we shouldn't expect this that you must get to know me as a Christian first and try to connect to me as a believer first and then watch your P's and Q's around me like no cuss words and then eventually I'll build a connect it's exactly the opposite I don't want you to cuss but like it, it the connection is how do I get to know you in your context so we can start from there I worked with this pastor once who, (laughs) I'm I'm 100% the opposite of this guy, and he was my boss, and (laughs) he was a real particular kind of person, and he said that whenever he traveled and went to a different place, he did everything he could possibly do. Now, I'm not making fun of you if you're like this. It just makes me laugh, like, you will do everything I can possibly do to make sure that when I go to that city, that I don't look like a tourist that I look like I'm from there. And I'm like, that's ridiculous. That <laughs> you're going around pretending you're somebody you're not while you're there, that's that's unbelievable. And he would say like, yeah, hey, I just wanna make sure that I, I get the clothing that they wear. I wanna make sure that I kinda of know all the places. I make sure, he told me this, I don't look around like I'm a tourist. I'm like, that's the best thing about being a tourist. But anyways, we didn't see eye to eye. I am a massive tourist. If. If you don't want to be embarrassed, then don't you know, like, don't hang out with me, because like, I will just ask questions and questions and questions. But the thing I noticed about this guy, and this, is, this was just more of like a frustration I think I had as someone who was leading me, is that he had this philosophy that he would engage the culture in such a way that it almost felt like he was part of the culture. But when I, when I engaged him around, it was more of like he had a bubble, in a Christian bubble, and he liked talking Christian terms and liked being around people who were very dedicated believers, and that's fine. But it felt like almost like he would distance himself from those who were really outside of his context when it came to his faith. It was my one disagreement I constantly had with him. And I think that it, it, and being in an unfamiliar place it is hard for people, I think, when we're trying to see what maybe God has on the other side of the conversation with someone we could never or don't ever or don't nothing about relate to, especially when it comes to the way they live, their culture, what they believe. I titled this message, contextualizing the gospel. And and I don't want this to be a scary phrase because it's an important phrase. I think we can get this phrase very, very wrong. Paul does a good job of showing us how to do it properly. But contextualizing the gospel. How does it become... Uh, how does it relate to me in my context, how does it meet me where I am, the kind of the sub-thought here is is communicating the gospel that feels, makes it feel at home in the culture's context, meaning that it should connect it someplace and not feel so foreign in a way that the gospel, it it, it doesn't translate. You know, I, I think it's hard for people to put their mind around that a little bit without changing the gospel message itself. But you should never change the message of the good news. You should never change the gospel. Paul shows us this very clear. He doesn't ever change the message. The message is eternal. It's the truth that brings salvation. But the, how we connect is very, very different on the cultures that we connect with. I'll tell you this, contextualize, let me talk about what it is and what it isn't, because we're going to see it unfold here. It, it, what it is is what Paul said in, to the Corinthians. He said, I, I, "I am become all things to all people, so that I may reach at least one for salvation. I'll become all things to all people." doesn't mean he changes his morals. It doesn't mean he changes his values. It doesn't mean he has to inundate himself like an undercover agent and then partake in everything that is almost barely l- legal. He is inundating himself into culture in a way that he wants to understand it so he can make the connection. I'll become all things to all people. And if you wonder where Paul even gets that from, you can only look to Jesus because Jesus did this for us. Hebrews 2, Philippians 2, they talk about how Jesus chose to lay down all of his glory and then become flesh in this incarnation, they call it, and become one amongst the people in first century in Palestine and teach even in the ways that those people would understand. If he was teaching in Athens, we're going to see, he would not have used the analogies he used. In order to communicate through these parables. So even Jesus himself contextualized right the gospel for our followers. For his followers. And he taught in that context. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 1, 11. 1, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. So Paul is literally inviting others to do what he has saw and seen Christ do. I think we do our best. Through devotion to God, number one, we were contextualizing love and compassion towards others to present the gospel so it can be understood. I don't mean loosening it. I mean making it under, to be understood. And we have to first then do that by being very curious about other people, other cultures who we are trying to connect with. If you don't know the answers, I hear a lot of people say this, like, well, I don't know the answers if somebody asks me scriptural things. So that's why I need to have you talk to them. And I'm like, if you don't know the answers, be very good at least asking questions. It'll eventually get you to be able to share an answer. But sometimes we want to have more of the answers and ask less questions. I think we do it all the time, though, naturally. Let me tell you how contextualization is working right now for the gospel. Everyone over in children's ministry right now is contextualizing the gospel. Now, I have seen, and you have seen too, that people who, when they're around kids, and they talk to kids like they're adults, it's quite odd, is it not? It's like, well, how, are you? how was your day today? And they're like, Mom. right? It's just like, you, you got you to gotta get down and, 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 and talk with them at their level. You got to get to what, maybe the understanding of where they're at and meet them where they're at. They're contextualizing the gospel all the time. All that, we can... We, we know it well, and we see it when it's really not done well. I think the, the most difficult or, say, common poor contextualizing, and not necessarily the gospel, is when you, an old adult, is now talking to a middle schooler. Have you ever done that? Whew. How is uh, the TikTok these days? Like They're like, oh my gosh. You don't even know. Oh, well, when I was your age, I was on MySpace. They're like, my, what? I, you know what I mean? Like we, it's very, very difficult when you're connecting with teenagers. It's, it's what you feel when someone is not contextualizing the gospel. Picture yourself talking to a teenager, trying to relate to them, and the awkwardness is how someone feels when you are not contextualizing Scripture to them. It feels uncomfortable, it feels weird. Now, let me talk about what it isn't. That's what it is, here's what it isn't. And I like it from this quote I read. Some mistakenly believe that contextualization means making Christianity look just like culture. However, contextualizing, or contextualization is simply the process of making the gospel understood. In fact, much of what we call contextualization is simply an effort to be trendy or edgy. Chad, we are way off that game. It may be effective. It may be, it may attract hearers. It may not be offensive to hearers, but it is not contextualizing, that's just marketing. We have to be very, very, very conscious on how we guard this. Because reaching someone doesn't mean uh, loosening our strong convictions about the gospel and the truth of the gospel. I think Christians make this mistake all the time, often in these days. Paul, what he does in Acts chapter 17, he gives us two very, very back-to-back, Luke shows us through Paul's ministry, good examples of him contextualizing the gospel. One is you're going to see that Paul encounters a group of people who have a scriptural heritage. They can handle the Old Testament, or the Torah, or the writings. They can handle it. They know. They have a level of great level of understanding of Scripture. So when Paul is showing up to present the fulfillment of these Scriptures, it's easier for them to connect here. And, and I, I wrote this down. Paul knows his audience. If they're familiar with Scripture, he begins with Scripture. If they're not familiar with Scripture, we'll see. He doesn't begin with Scripture. We have to be very in tune and aware of how Paul moved and operated, he was a very good example for us on how to be an evangelist, a gospel carrier, in, in a world which very much will relate to the very next city he goes to. But this one, let me read it in verse, or Acts chapter 17, verse 10. If you want to open up there, that says, "The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They're on the run from a city that didn't <laughs> that uh, the people who were upset at the synagogue raised up a mod pay paid some." kind of like thugs, to raise up in a riot, chased him out of the city. He later writes two letters to that city, but he's on his way to a new city, 100, 100 miles away, I think maybe maybe 55 or 100 miles away. It says, and when he arrived, they went into this Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those of Thessalonica, which he just got chased out of. That word, more noble, is not Luke saying these people are better than them. He's saying that their, their character is stronger. This is a word that, me, that really relates to their character, who they were. They weren't reactional. They weren't so dead. And, and, and I'll tell you, I'll put it this way. They were not insecure in Scripture. Whenever somebody challenges you about your faith or about God, sometimes our response our emotional response to maybe saying, if they say, well, you know, God's not real, you've never seen him, have you seen him? Point him out to me. And if we get really, it might reveal a little bit of insecurity in maybe even our faith, or maybe what we believe in scripture, or what we know about scripture. So sometimes a challenge can reveal a little bit of insecurity. These people were not insecure about scripture. Let's hear it. We know scripture. We'll weigh it against scripture. This is a beautiful picture of this city. They, uh, sorry, um, let me go. They received the word with all eagerness. And here was the key examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I, I usually don't feel insecure if someone begins to challenge me. I have in times before where I was maybe a little bit scripturally insecure. But I know what I believe. I know what the scripture says. And if somebody breaks something, I'll surely go and research and examine it myself to weigh it up against scripture. They were confident in scripture. That whatever was brought their way, they could weigh it themselves. This is the context of who he's talking to. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women, meaning a lot of them in high standing as well as men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica... (laughs) They're really upset. They're on their way after him. Learn that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea. Also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. But Paul learned his lesson like he did in Thessalonica. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas, who's been traveling with him, and Timothy, these are his disciples, remain there. Those who conducted Paul or were handling him, brought him. As far as Athens, after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Uh, the, in Berea today, there is a statue of the Apostle Paul still there. This city has been around since 1000 BC, and it's endured quite a bit. And since Christianity had endured quite a bit of persecution. There are still about 50 churches there today. It has pushed on through the thousands of years of their faith through many, many overtaken from different empires, different groups, many invasions over and over and over. It's a very small city, but it has held its faith this long, this far. These people have stood strong. Paul did a wonderful job of establishing that church. Psalms 119, when we think about the word in scripture, Psalms 119 says this, your word. God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's your word that will lead me there. There are a lot of really good ideas. There's a, there, there are some interpretations of scripture that are shocking sometimes. But your word, the word is going to be the lamp into your feet. The word is what we balance it again. The word is what will stand the test of time. The word will be the lamp unto my feet. And these people in Berea embrace that if we're going to find the light, if we're going to find the path here, all. we'll use the word let me give you a reflection on Berea real quick scripture is our greatest witness to God's truth more than a first hand account scripture is our greatest witness it speaks to the resurrection and the New Testament writings reveal what the resurrection was it is our greatest witness against Anything that might be a new thought, a challenging of scripture, or a different interpretation. I think we have to search it. We have to examine it. We need to also be able to interpret it through the lens of the resurrection. And this is what the Bereans were able to do. That Paul was saying, this, 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 this passage, this passage, this passage. Isaiah, (laughs) everything is pointing to this moment. And it has happened. And they said, we believe because we know the word. I guess my challenge to you in this, about the city that would challenge us about when you're talking to a spiritual heritage, somebody who has been raised in the church, maybe gone from the church. I mean, statistics today, I mean, 25% of America says that they are not or will not go to church. I mean, we're not in this huge Christian population anymore. It has changed. It has shifted. So we have to be aware of what the next conversation Paul has here. We're not living in the Berean culture as much as we used to. You will reason outside of Scripture in the beginning, pointing them to Scripture. But right now, I would say, like the Bereans, our church, our people should dedicate their time to scripture, so that we can experience Second Timothy 316, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. All scripture has been breathed out by God. We should examine and study the scriptures every day. I, I, I study the Bible for a living. Like, sometimes I fall asleep reading many times in a week. I mean, come on. Wow. I'll be like, wow. It's, it's, it's not like, <laughs> it's, it's not easy, I don't think, sometimes for anyone. As much as I love it, and I love, love, love studying scripture, it, it still is hard. It's difficult. But if I can encourage anyone who says, you know, it's just too difficult for me, find someone who can help you. Find a resource that can lead you to understand the context of the scripture a little bit more, understand a little bit more how to see it in a way through a healthy, proper interpretation, it will ultimately guide and direct us be the lamp unto our feet. Now, that is a contextualized gospel presentation to a scripturally, you know, like heritage community. But then, we, then we, he goes into another group, which is the scripturally deprived. He goes to Athens, and you have to know this about the Athenians. They were brilliant, even in the days of Rome, way past Athens prime. They were still the the, the philosophical, intellectual invention hub of the entire known world. They were brilliant, but they were scripturally illiterate. And so Paul is now coming into here. Paul purposely pressed towards these cultures, though, not, not, that knew nothing of Scripture or even Yahweh. We live in a very much a, a, a world that if we said who Jesus is, most people will go, oh, Jesus, I've heard of him. This, this is not the case here. But how, how, how Paul engaged scripturally deprived people is amazing. And if you love Paul's theology. And this is my little hook to get you. If you love his theology, then you have to love his heart. I think a lot of times we would just love to know what Paul wrote and just go, wow, that's so good. But then you have to also love his heart. And what was his heart? To go into places that were difficult, to push beyond cultures and barriers, to immerse himself so he could then connect in the gospel. If you love, his, if you love what Paul wrote, should love his heart, because this is his heart, 100%. First thing, we're going to see a few parts of this section in Athens when he arrives. One, and I think this is good for a, a culture that doesn't have the context, doesn't have the scriptural history, and you're just kind of coming in with people who are just living life in a very different way, the first thing he does here is he sees and he pays attention to what he feels. What does he see? And what does he feel? We have to ask ourselves what stirs our heart when we see it. What stirs, not just in compassion, but where something and someone or a group of people are lost. What stirs our heart? What moves it? What provokes it? Acts 17 16. Now, Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him. As he saw, the city was full of idols. I don't think Paul was ignorant on Athens. He was very educated. But I think he was surprised at what his heart felt when he saw this city that was dominated by idolatry. Paul is not the kind of person who goes around and is like, oh, look at that sculpture. Oh, wow, I'm going to hike up to the Acropolis. I'm going to get up there. I'm going to get a picture with Diana. Or, you know, I just think it's like unbelievable that Paul, the first thing he does is he absorbs the culture and what he's experiencing spiritually. What do you see? What do you feel? That word provoked means he was Disturbed. Provoked is used many, many times when God, throughout the Old Testament, where God is provoked to anger because of what his people have done and gone to other idols. And he's not only provoked because he loves, Paul's being provoked, is disturbed because of his love for people and seeing these people who are absolutely lost. The ancient historian said that there are more gods when he went to survey Athens. There are more gods here than people. And he wasn't wrong. Every new building being dedicated in Athens had a god that it was dedicated to. There are 12 major gods, the Olympic gods that we know. They're famous like Zeus, Apollos, Athena. But then there was the primordial gods, which is they were first. They gave birth to the Olympic gods and then the, uh, or to the, to the uh, titan gods, which is 31 of those. And then there was 79 other gods that were worshipped. And then there was the Roman pantheon who all came in and they worshipped. And then they had to worship Caesar, of course. There was a lot of gods. But you got to remember, Paul is seeing Athens not through a tourist's eyes, not through just a, someone within the Roman Empire. He's seen it through a Christian's eyes. When Christians see things, we see things differently, right? What provokes our heart is because we see things differently. When we see pain and suffering, my hope, and it should be, is that Christians see things differently. When we see a disturbed group of people, we see it differently. A disenfranchised group of people, we see things differently. We see it with Christian eyes. When we see a culture that has gone off the rails into idol worship, we should see it differently. And I don't think our culture is very much different than the Athenian culture. They worshipped idols everywhere, and we struggle with this. You may not have a shrine. (laughs) You may not light a candle to it. You may not bring an offering to it, but you offer your life to it. And that can be materialism. It can be all these things that capture our life and our attention and pull us in all these different directions that promise something that's unknown it will never deliver on. And Paul is very much... After this. So he sees Athens through the eyes of a Christian and it moves him. Verse uh, 17. Now he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Very common of what he would do is to go to a synagogue and reason with the Jews and devoted persons, meaning people who have converted to Judaism and/or honoring at least Yahweh in the marketplace. Every day uh, with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, What does this babbler wish to say? Now, these philosophers are kind of highbrow philosophers. Pretty notable within the city. They follow a very strict philosophy. Leads and governs their life. And when they call him a babbler... It's pretty offensive. This babbler, was, uh, uh, the word originally means a seed picker, meaning like a bird that goes around and picks up pieces. So what they're accusing Paul of is, here's someone who's going around picking up little bits, tidbits of things here, and he's really becoming, trying to become an armchair philosopher. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like when you read WebMD, and you read about it, and then you tell someone about it, but you're just armchair. You're not a physician. You just picked up little pieces here and there. You don't do that. Okay. It's what they're accusing him of. It's highly offensive. And others said he seems to be preaching to foreign deities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, he, they don't mean Jesus and the resurrection the way you think it. They literally, the way Luke is writing this, is that they see him preaching this new God, this new deity, Jesus, a God, and his wife, Resurrection, They don't see the connection there. They think he's offering these new gods when they hear the words. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Now, this rest of the story seems like it's very voluntary. I don't believe this is voluntary. It doesn't suggest that. Um, They were an authority in the city. Rome gave them power to make decisions as magistrates almost. They were in charge of deciding who was going to Bring a new God in, or how gods were worshiped. This was a very important council. But they were highly intellectual and they loved to talk about new things. It says, they said, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke writes his own little commentary here. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I read that and I thought long and hard and I thought, oh, we're, we're just like this. I, I feel like we very much relate to Athens and the Athenian people. I'll tell you how you can relate. Anytime you hear, oh, that's so 2021. Right? We always want something new. We want to discover something new. We want to see the newest thing. We want to hear the newest thing. We want new discovery. And then we find out, oh, don't take that vitamin now. Oh, that's bad now. They just found out we take this vitamin. Do you know what I'm talking about? Just personal frustration. And then we're always searching something new. So this was very much their culture. Who he is being brought to by this council is very important on how you hear his sermon. It's not really a sermon. It's really more of a speech. You're going to hear this speech and it's a paraphrase of what he said. This is not exactly what, this would never have been conducted this way on this council. He would have spoken for hours. They presented things in hours. Luke gives us a great summary of what has happened. But he's speaking to these Epicurean philosophers. Let me give you uh, the philosophy of the Epicureans. Pleasure was the chief end in life. Their motto was nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death, good or pleasure can be attained, and evil and pain can be endured. If I could summarize it in my own motto for today, they're a YOLO group. They just live in right front right now. Whatever comes, comes. You know, anything goes. And the Stoic philosophers, which many of you would know about, but they live according to the rational principles that are indwelt in everything around us, particularly according to nature. They are self-sufficient, and they are autonomous. They pride themselves in that. Uh, they don't have a motto themselves, but they remain principled, they're rational, no matter what happens, and I would say a good motto to sum them up in our language today is they maintain a stiff upper lip. No matter what comes your way, hold strong. Emotions, forget about them. (laughs) Uh, Hold strong, rationalize. We can get our way through it. You're self-sufficient. So this makes a lot of sense with these two groups when you start to hear the way the sermon goes. So we saw that Paul sees and he feels. And we see that ultimately we're going to see now that he is going to affirm something important about them. This is a very good pattern to watch. He's going to affirm them. Paul acknowledges that what they seek is important to them. What they're seeking is very important to them as a culture. Oh, this is going to have to be my last point, and i got so many more. I will finish this next week. Will you all be back? Otherwise, I'll finish it now, and it'll take me an hour. Okay, so we're coming back next week. Come back next week. And I'm going to finish this last point. First thing he does is he sees, and He feels. You know, so many times you see the people with the signs and and, and they're on the corners and, you know, all of us go, stop. (laughs) Like, there's better ways. Love your passion. But is there better ways? I've had many encounters with the sign people. I don't know if you have. I feel it's my duty to go. (laughs) Yeah. They don't end well. But I don't argue. I don't get mad. I'm just like... I just asked a basic question. How effective is this? When's the last time someone said, you're right? I'm like, well, not yet. Now, how long have you been doing it? Well, a year. And I'm like, well, okay. Maybe we should think about this a little bit. I think that some of the times, though, the things when we're engaging in a different culture, we have to affirm what they're looking for and see that they're striving for something instead of just judging them and pushing them away. Paul acknowledged. What they seek and its importance to them. Acts 17:22. Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus. Paul standing in the midst of meaning he brought him to give a full TED talk in front of the era. There is no worship. This is not a church service. He is giving a presentation, but he begins to preach. And he said, "Men of Athens, and this is the right way to address it." He knows his crowd. Had he stepped in front of this crowd and not addressed it this way, it would have been offensive. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now this is very different from what we read a minute ago when he said he was disturbed when he walked into their city. And these are the ones who govern it. Religious activity. I perceive that you are very religious for as I pass along and observe the objects of worship I found an altar with its inscription to the unknown God what therefore you worship as unknown I proclaim to you this is a brilliant piece of scripture right here he right here he affirms that they're they're seeking something I can see your devotion I can see it all around me and I can see that even with the unknown God That if you can't even, you're searching so much, you're so superstitious, you so want to do well that you'll even worship an unknown God in case you missed it with Zeus. In case one was there and you never affirmed it. You so deeply desire that connection. But I want to proclaim to you that I know this God you're talking about. Psalms 46.10 says, I love Because this begins to come true. And I love this verse because it comes true right here in this moment. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. And I will be exalted in the earth. This begins to happen right here. Paul is saying, my God, the God, who is exalted, will be exalted now. You have called him unnamed I have his name. So he, agree, he, he affirms what they're looking for. We're going to go through, I guess, next week, and we'll go through the rest of it, and we'll go through step by step of this talk he has. I would definitely encourage you to finish reading the chapter, and as you come back next week, we will then walk through this together. But to me, it's too important to rush, and it's too important not to do. So we will stop there, and, and, and let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you, God, for missionaries like Paul who so passionately love the world like you loved the world that he was willing to go to any culture, any place and connect. But God, let us be like Paul in that way, that challenge that, that, that not only do we know Scripture like the Bereans That we dedicate ourselves so we are scripturally secure when any new teaching, any new philosophy, any way that we feel like we hear something that's interesting, but we weigh it against scripture like the Bereans did. And God, I just pray that as we enter into cultures that you bring us to people that we would never have known where they come from, who they are, God, that we do what Paul does. And we start from wherever they're at. But God, I thank you that Paul never leaves and leaves them where they're at. Just like in this speech, he will always bring them to resurrection. But God, thank you for this example that we can see and we can feel. Open our hearts to see and feel so we can be moved into engaging the culture around us. So God, we love you. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for today as we dedicate a little Victoria, God, And God, we just ask that you just be with us today as we go and we break bread. And we, this moment, God, we, Jesus, we acknowledge today at lunch, we are literally celebrating that you gave your life and we are celebrating that your blood covered our sins and that we have freedom. And so God, as we do that today, we honor you and we thank you as we worship you in this last song. Open our hearts, God, spiritually charge us to engage the culture, not stay in a bubble. But God, that Paul led a way for us and showed us how it can be done to be very versatile, ambidextric, if you will, to contextualize the gospel in the way that is effective to the world. Our job is not done, God. Our job has just begun. So God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me this last song?